This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, November 29th. The federal government reaches a deal with Google on the Online News Act. Will this encourage Meta to resume talks with Ottawa? We have the Minister of Heritage standing by. Plus, a stunning U.S. indictment alleges multiple Indian assassination plots across North America. Did this U.S. investigation help inform Prime Minister Trudeau's allegations about India's role in a murder on Canadian soil? We'll ask a former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And the Power Panel is here to weigh in on both of these top stories. Google and the federal government have reached an agreement in their dispute over the Online News Act. Canadian news will continue to be shared on Google's platforms, and in return, Google will be compensating Canadian news organizations with about $100 million annually. Meta, meanwhile, says, unlike search engines, we do not proactively pull news from the Internet to place in our users' feeds, and we have long been clear that the only way we can reasonably comply with the Online News Act is by ending news availability for people in Canada. This agreement comes three weeks before the Online News Act rules come into force. Pascal Saint-Ange is the Federal Heritage Minister, and she joins me now. Minister, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Your, your government started this process with, three, with C-18, uh, seeking $172 million from Google a year. You ended it with $100 million, which is what Google had put on the table months ago. So what did you really gain in these talks? Because this looks like Google got more or less what it wanted. Well, there's a lot of uh, different amounts that have been uh, floated uh, during the whole uh, legislative process. Uh, what we've secured is $100 million uh, per year uh, of monetary compensation for the new sector in Canada. Uh, of course, uh, Google also offers services to uh, our news outlets, and uh, these will be negotiated with, uh, with the news sector. Uh, but what we've secured is uh, the monetary part of the compensation uh, that will also be indexed to inflation. Right. So there are really two targets for this legislation, Google and Meta, which runs Facebook and Instagram. You're also seeking $62 million from them. And they pulled out entirely, and now news agencies have lost access to those platforms. So is the industry you were trying to help really better off after all of this? Well, we have. uh, Today we're announcing that uh, there will be $100 million per year uh, of new revenue for the new uh, new sector in Canada, which is excellent news. Uh, What we set with the Online News Act is actually a, a more fair and more balanced uh, commercial relationship between digital platforms and with our mu- news outlets here in Canada. And if you look around the world, uh, I haven't seen other deals that can actually compare. Um, last week, uh, last weekend, CBC published an article that said that Germany reached an agreement of $4.8 million per year with Google. So I think that we uh, installed a transparent uh, system here in Canada, and uh, we have secured the uh, $100 million per year for our new sector. Right, but, so, but Meta was also uh, giving money to various journalism organizations uh, across the country. Those have all ended as a result of this. And they issued a statement today saying, more or less, this doesn't do it for them and they won't be coming back because nothing in terms of the regulations with Google uh, addresses their concerns. So should we just accept that news is off uh, Meta's platforms as long as C18 is on the books in Canada? No, I think that we need to ask uh, uh, Facebook why they are choosing to uh, let the 
disinformation and misinformation dominate their platform. And we're seeing that Facebook across the world is cutting down news. Uh, we're seeing this in the United States. Recently, they pulled the news tabs out uh, in Europe. So I think that this is a, a trend for Facebook. And I don't understand why Mark Zuckerberg prefers disinformation to good uh, journalistic content. But, but if you look at the framework of what you've agreed to here with Google, certainly this is something that's been in the public domain for months and months, that this is what they were willing to accept. So Facebook must have made similar sort of demands. I just wonder, ha had the government compromised earlier in the process, might there be more money and more platforms on the table here for the news industry? I've always said that my door was open to having those discussions both with Google and with Facebook. Google chose another approach, which is uh, to work with the government because they understand that uh, Google is better with Canadian news on it. Uh, unfortunately, Facebook has uh, chosen a different trajectory. Uh, I hope that they uh, get back to uh, the table because uh, Facebook would be better with good Canadian news on it. Right. So what we have with this agreement, instead of it being a 4% tax, uh, which had been criticized as a link tax, and I know that was a term that was disputed, we essentially have a fund being set up that, that, that Google will pay into. So who will administer this $100 million fund and who will qualify for the money? Well, it's very clear under the legislation uh, that uh, Google will have to negotiate with uh, every uh, type of um, news outlets in Canada, whether it's uh, um, official language, uh, news outlets in minority situation, whether it's uh, First Nations uh, media outlets. Um, and this is very clear under the legislation. Um, and uh, so there will be uh, a moment where uh, these uh, media that want to ha have access to that deal with Google will have to uh, come forward. Um, Google can then negotiate with uh, a collective on the, the final agreement. But so, so who leads that collective? Who is the bargaining uh, agent uh, on behalf of the news industry? It's not clear to me who would sit down with Google to have these conversations. All the details about the final regulations will be published uh, shortly before uh, the legislation uh, is actually enacted on December 19, but uh, what I can say is that the, the new sector will have to organize as a collective uh, to get this negotiation going with Google. So who, who decides who gets what share of, of the $100 million? Because uh, that's going to be, I sense, a, a, a key issue and a potential source of tension there. Well, um, the news outlets that are uh, under that fall under the legislation uh, will be admissible to uh, receive uh, compensation, and uh, the final details around how uh, this money can be redistributed will be made uh, public when, once uh, the final regulations are published uh, near uh, December 19. Okay, so under the legislation, um, I, I'm going to ask a question about the CBC, so I'm just going to declare my conflict of interest up front there. Uh, it, it isn't clear to me how CBC Radio Canada fits into this, because under the legislation, we qualify. Yeah. But that was back uh, when the plan was not to have a capped amount of money available. If you take a large, publicly funded organization like CBC Radio Canada and put them into this fund, aren't we going to squeeze out or reduce the benefits for smaller, more vulnerable uh, news organizations? How do we fit into this picture? Well, uh, CBC Radio Canada is uh, admissible under the legislation, uh, and when the final regs uh, come, uh, are being published, 
you know, the details of how uh, this will be redistributed will be made public. Uh, but what I can say is that we uh, will be taking into account the fact that CBC Radio Canada is receiving also public funds, right. uh, that they have a large, uh, that the public broadcaster has a, a, a lot of journalists, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, so, um, so more clarity will come. But we've taken all of this into account uh, into the final regulations. So, so Minister, I, I know you're not going to tell me the details of the final regulations uh, until they're published, but does this mean a cap on total percentage of the fund? Does this mean a priority list where you triage based on the financial health of various organizations versus a publicly funded entity to like ours? Because it seems if you want to help journalistic organizations in Canada, there are uh, ones out there in much worse shape than us because of the support we get from the taxpayers. Is, is, is that the idea of what you're talking about here, putting us at the end of the line? Yeah, well, the final amount uh, that each uh, news outlet will, will receive uh, depends on how many news outlets actually come forward uh, to be part of the collective that will be negotiating with Google. Uh, so more details will, will be made available in the next few uh, months. Uh, around that, but yes, uh, you know the the reason why we're putting this system in place is so uh, that uh, independent news outlets, uh, that local journalism is also compensated, and uh, that this helps the whole sector. So, how many entities you anticipate being in this collective? Because if you look at the the explosion of digital publishing, all the various entities that that exist right now in Canada. What's your sense of the order of magnitude of, of, of companies that will qualify for this aid and, and what types do you see benefiting the most from this? Well, I don't have a, a precise number. There's, of course, hundreds of news outlets out there. Uh, but what we know from StatScan uh, is that uh, there's probably close to 9,000 journalists, uh, including journalists from the CBC Radio Canada in Canada. So we can imagine, uh, you know, the amount of uh, journalists uh, that will be taken into account for uh, the redistribution. Okay, J just as a final question on Meta and Facebook. Uh, you say, you know, you're always willing to meet with them and you're always willing to talk with them. Now that you have an agreement with Google, will you reach out to Meta and see if there is an opportunity, a desire, an appetite to talk with you about a path forward? Or do you think that right now things just can't move? My door is always open to have conversation with uh, platforms. We're talking about Meta. Others in the, in the next few months and years might also fall under the legislation uh, and meet the threshold. So, uh, you know, my door is always open uh, for Facebook and all the others. Heritage Minister Pascal St. Ange, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Okay, we're going to turn now to the industry for some reaction to the government's deal with Google. Village Media is a digital-only local news publisher operating in 21 communities here in Ontario. The CEO of that is Jeff Elgy, and he joins me now. Jeff, it's, it's good to finally speak to you on uh, television. Thanks for coming you on too. today. Uh, Thanks for having me. There still seems like a lot of details uh, to work out, but we've got the size of the pie. I mean, what, what's your reaction uh, to the news today? Well, let's start with relief. <laughs> um, obviously, we were highly concerned about the potential for Google to pull news from their platform. Um, they're a huge driver of traffic for the whole industry. And so the fact that there's any deal done, whether it be a dollar or a hundred million dollars, is, is very, um, it's a happy moment for us in that sense. Yeah, I, I mean, just being able to stay on the search engine. Uh, I know you had talked that Facebook was a hit, but, but losing Google to your business would have been pretty catastrophic, really, to the industry. So, so what, what does this mean for your bottom line and your company? 
So, yeah, I mean, Facebook was about a 17% traffic hit and Google had the potential to be a 34% traffic hit. So you're talking 50% combined, which would be devastating for the bulk of the industry. You know, in terms of the financials, um, Minister St. Ange just approximated perhaps 9,000 journalists uh, across the country. We think it's maybe a bit close to 8,000. But if you take you know, the full scope of the CBC, the full scope of, of the private broadcasters and the full scope of the news industry. Um, and you divide it up by $100 million, um, you've got about in the range of ten to $12,500 per journalist that would come out of this fund. Um, so financially, it's it's good. I mean, it's a good position for us. Um, you know, it's 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 a better position than we're in right now. So certainly no complaints in that sense. I, I, I asked the minister, I, I, I don't know if you heard this, about the CBC and where we fit into this, because look, we get money from the taxpayers, right? And and, and if yes. this and, and, I, and I know this is is not about it's kind of about the disruption of the advertising markets, which has affected us, but we have a protection against it that private companies like you don't have. How do you think the public broadcasters should fit into this, both us and Radio Canada, uh, just given that advantage that we have? Well, to be, to be fair, I, I don't really think that you should participate in it. I mean, you know, CBC employs a lot of journalists, um, you know, has the protection and the support of the government to, to, a, to a, a high degree. I mean, I think if you have 3,000 journalists and you've got $1.2 billion in funding roughly, like that equates to roughly $400,000 of journalists, I think, if the math is kind of you know, somewhere around there. It's, it's, it's substantial. Um, so... You know, we don't really feel that that it should be fully scoped in. I, I guess the second layer is if it's going to be scoped in, then the the functions, the scope of journalism roles should be focused on online news and, and ideally online news created specifically primarily for that purpose, right? So that, that might then help restrict the and, – and we won't, of course, know this until the final regulations come out, but, you know, that that is uh, – that's the hope is that it's somewhat restricted. Yeah, look, I'm not going to object to your point, but I, I do have to say that not all of that money goes to news, right? There's a lot of television production and other oh, for sure. that, that yeah, go in no, there. So, sure. the, so that ratio, trust <laughs> me, it's not 400000 uh, per journalist here. Let me, let me, I know. Let me no, tell you no, that. For sure. But look, look, when we look at this, the $100 million going into a fund with a single collective bargaining entity, however that is going to be manifested, this is what Google has said months and months and months ago it wanted, was willing to live with, and could work. And here we are. Yes. Uh, and along the way, Meta has pulled out. I mean, if this compromise had happened earlier, do you think they might have found a way to keep Meta into the picture? We'll I, I think for sure. I mean, you've probably heard me speak on this before. For years now, we've been saying create a fund, distribute it fairly, proportionally based on journalism expenditure. Don't make it about stealing content or link taxes, etc. Both Facebook and Meta have always said and, in fact, have supported the news industry since we've been in business. Um, I don't think they were shy of the dollar amount, especially Google. They have said they would, would contribute $100 million. I mean, I think, you know, the, the sad news is this could have been done much more quickly with a lot less pain and stress. And we probably could have kept Meta in, um, you know, had we gone about it from the beginning a little bit differently. So what's been the hit uh, of losing Meta? I, I, I've been following you on LinkedIn and other platforms where you talked about this, where, where you say Facebook is really good for launching into a new market because you're kind of filling that local yeah. news void uh, through your company by setting up digital local news sites. Um, and, but, you know, but, but Google's all about the, the heavy traffic. What's been the impact on your business of being off Meta for these last number of months? 
Yeah, so we have felt a, a, an active traffic impact on our existing sites, and that varies depending on how mature the, the market is for us. Um, you know, so we and we we're working hard to make up for that lost traffic. So we have been able to kind of. Uh, stay pretty whole. However, if if Meta was still in, we would just be doing that much more better. Right. The tricky part is exactly that: the new market launches. And in fact, in May of this year, we announced that we were suspending any new community launches until the kind of final outcome of of the bill was known, and and also so that we could test other tactics to grow audience and communities. And it's really hard. Facebook was. The, the number one tactic for new market launches for us that not only just um, building up audience on Facebook that would kind of organically see your posts, um, passively see them start to get used to your brand, your news, start clicking, start becoming an avid reader. But we also use Facebook very actively to acquire email subscribers. Right. So there's a really strong linkage between both of those um, to our the performance of the the audience. And, you know, we are testing a lot of things right now. And in fact, yesterday, we did announce because we expected that a, a deal with Google was coming and that obviously there was a good announcement with the, the wage subsidy for journalism last week. We are announcing that we will probably start growing again in 2024. But it's, I think it's going to be a lot tougher. I, I think getting a new publication up to a, a reasonable size in absence of meta, there, there just is no other social channel that, that's equivalent for news. Yeah, uh, that's certainly something we've noticed here, even on, on this show, our, our small part of, of the news world. But look, uh, a final question. We, we won't know the final regulations for a couple of weeks, right? It won't come into force until the 19th of December, so I anticipate it'll be published in the days leading up to that. But there's still this whole question of who sits down across from Google in this new collective. And, you know, <laughs> I, I've been in a lot of scrums in my life. Getting journalists to do anything in an orderly fashion is hard. How do you think that has to work, Jeff? Like, who... Who needs to lead that and organize that? Because that feels like a huge missing piece right now in, in the overall puzzle. I'll tell you, I would not want that job. Uh, <laughs> because I think what you're going to find, the two primary leads on this are probably News Media Canada as well as the Canadian Association of Broadcasters on the private broadcast side. Mm-hmm. And so they both have strong positions. I mean, there's some independent groups like Press Forward that has a position. The trick is getting everyone to agree. And I think that is going to be the next real struggle with this is, you know, defining what a qualified organization is, defining what scope of journalism roles get captured by this, and then how those funds are distributed. Um, I think the distribution of funds should be obviously based on journalism expenditure. um, So maybe that part's easy. But defining the roles that get captured in this, Mm. I I think there's many, many battles to be had still in, in some quiet boardrooms. Yeah, uh, Google just has to write a check and sit back and let us figure it out now. Uh, Jeff LG, CEO of Village Media, thanks for your time. Good to hear you're growing again. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Take care. The United States has charged an Indian national in connection to a stunning murder-for-hire plot. The 15-page indictment reads like a movie script. An unnamed Indian government official contacts an alleged Indian drug trafficker to orchestrate the assassination of a Sikh separatist in New York City. That man, in turn, attempts to hire a hitman and, in doing so, tips off American law enforcement. The CBC's Katie Simpson is tracking this story for us in Washington. Katie, uh, I I can't believe I just read those words. What happened uh, when the defendant in this case tried to hire that hitman? 
Well, let's go back to the month of May when all of this started. According to the indictment, an Indian national by the name of Nikhil Gupta was allegedly hired by an Indian government employee to carry out this assassination plot of a Sikh political activist in New York City in exchange for $100,000. Authorities say Gupta needed assistance and unknowingly reached out to an informant and was eventually put in contact with an undercover agent posing as a hitman. Gupta allegedly shared details about the target's address, his daily routine, and sent along instructions. Now, originally, Gupta allegedly said he wanted this to happen not close to the lead-up to a major political event in the U.S., which, of course, was the visit by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, Joe Biden held a, a state dinner for him at the White House. Now, Gupta was allegedly worried that if anything happened in the immediate lead-up to that, it could lead to protests or cause unwanted attention. Uh, and in some of those initial contacts, Gupta allegedly said, finish him, brother, finish him. Don't take too much time. Authorities continue to engage with Gupta until he was arrested. Gupta traveled to the Czech Republic and he was taken into custody there. And he is now facing two charges in this case. Okay, so the indictment suggests multiple alleged assassination plots tied to an Indian government official, including the one here in Canada of Hardeep Singh Nidger. What more can you tell me about that? The incident in New York City is part of this indictment, allegedly is just part of a bigger, broader part. Again, this has not been proven in a court of law, but this is according to the indictment. The indictment makes direct links to the murder of Hardeep Singh Nidger. It comes up multiple times, along with references to other alleged assassination plots. In the indictment, it says, quote, Gupta stated that before the 29th of June, we have to finish four jobs, i.e. that the, uh, the after that, three in Canada, and there are no... The, there were four specific jobs, one in the U.S. and three in Canada. There are no specific details in the indictment about what those plots may be, but certainly it's raising a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. Niger's name comes up multiple times in this indictment, as I mentioned. After the murder took place in British Columbia, Gupta allegedly referenced it in his communications with his contacts. The indictment says, quote, Later that evening, just hours after the Niger murder, uh, uh, the one of the informants sent Gupta, uh, Gupta sent a video clip that showed Nidra's body, bloody body slumped in his vehicle. According to the indictment, after the murder, Gupta wasn't concerned about the timeline and then urged his contacts to act. Of course, that did not happen, and he was arrested. Okay, uh, uh, there's a lot there and a lot of players, but you spoke with yeah. the alleged target of this New York plot, Gurpatwant Singh Panan, I believe. What did he tell you about this? Well, he is a Sikh activist leader based in New York City. And, of course, the indictment references that an individual uh, of that title as the target. It doesn't explicitly name him, uh, but he says he was the target. Um, he didn't seem phased at all by the threat in his life. We had a conversation earlier this afternoon. But I'm not going to stop our debtor just because the Modi regime has sent hitmen to kill me. Uh, I know my life is in danger and they wanted to kill me for running the Sassanist Global Khalistan Referendum campaign. Uh, he says that he's more motivated by ever to, than ever after reading the indictment to carry out his work, and that will be the way he pushes forward.
Okay, Katie, uh, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Katie Simpson in Washington, D.C. Uh, for more on the story, I'm joined here in Ottawa by Ward Elcock. He is a former director of the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. Uh, Mr. Elcock, I, I mean, this is, uh, this is quite the thing uh, in terms of what was spelled <laughs> out here. Let's start with the big headline because this indictment and its allegations, let's say that up front. The indictment suggests there were multiple assassination plots in North America tied to the Indian government, including three in Canada. What are, what are your thoughts on these allegations? Um, I think from the beginning, the acquisition of, uh, about Nijar, uh, I guess the question in the back of my mind is, uh, have, there been, have there been others and will there be others? It sounds like they intended for there to be others. Uh, if you read well, there may already have been. Who knows sure. exactly? Because there are a number of Sikh kill killings of Sikhs in Canada which have uh, unsolved. gone unsolved. Right. So, so th th this is obviously an alarming possible consequence uh, of what we're reading about here. But also, if you read this 15-page indictment, uh, there's talk. The, the, this man, Gupta, who has been charged, is reportedly saying to his contacts, who we now know we're working for law enforcement, if you do this one right, there will be more for you, maybe once every month, every two or three months. How should we view the Modi government and India with what has unfolded, at least in, in what the Prime Minister said and what the U.S. court is alleging over the last couple of months? Well, I think it becomes increasingly clear that, that the government of India has been running a campaign to eliminate uh, Sikh, Sikh separatists or people they regard as Sikh extremists. Um, uh, and the Nijar case clearly indicated that and clearly the, the government signaled that it had very strong intelligence from probably a large part from the Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and this this really adds a lot of fuel to the fire. Uh, the Americans must have had intelligence that these folks were coming. Uh, you don't set up a, a trap like that overnight. You, you don't just simply have somebody uh, there who can be a, um, a, a potential assassin uh, kind of on call. So uh, this is obviously a fairly complicated operation the, the FBI has run. So, so the, the chain of this, there is the, the, the individual identified as CC1 in the indictment in India. This is the Indian government official uh, in the indictment who is not named, but it uh, suggests that law enforcement has identified the individual. The indictment describes him as a senior field officer with responsibility in security management and intelligence. What do you read into that? Actually, I thought the thing that was more interesting in the document was the fact that he is described as a as a former police officer, mm -hmm. which is actually, if you go back to the individual who's expelled from Canada, he was also uh, a former police officer, but seconded to RAW. Uh, so it would suggest that the Indians are, that RAW is indeed using former police officers as part of its operations. And, and what is RAW for people who don't know the Indian? Uh, RAW is the uh, Research and Intelligence Wing, which is the Indian Foreign Service. Foreign Intelligence Service. Okay, so y you suggest because this plot was foiled in the U.S. while Mr. Niger w was killed here in Canada, they must have had some sort of intelligence that this was coming. So this individual, CC1, the former police officer, he contacts Mr. Gupta, according to the indictment. This is the person who was charged with this, who then contacts someone he believes can help him get a hitman who turns out to be a confidential source for law enforcement, who then leads them to the undercover yes. agent. 
Is that the result of good intelligence, or is that just a bit of luck that the person Mr. Gupta allegedly reached out to could was a, had happened to be a confidential source? It, it could be luck. Luck does happen, but it sounds to me like a, a planned operation. Right, okay. I, I want to go back to something Katie showed, and, and this is one of the, the graphics we put up. This is paragraph six of the indictment, and it's something that jumped out at me. It says, later in the evening, just hours after the Nidra murder, CC1, who is, is the official in India, sent Gupta, who is the man charged with the <clears throat> killing for hire in New York. He was sent a video clip that showed Nidra's body slumped in the vehicle. About an hour later, CC1, which is the official in India, sent Gupta the street address of the victim's residence in New York City. So, what do you draw from that? Within hours of Hurdip Singh Nijjar being murdered, this official in India is sending pictures of the crime scene to the person he's allegedly hired to murder another sick activist in New York City. I mean, how would they get these pictures? What, what, do you, what should we draw from, from that little detail? Well, it strongly suggests that the folks who, who carried out the assassination took the pictures uh, and sent proof home. It's frankly what, what it would suggest to me. So how do we view what the Prime Minister said in Parliament with details like this there? Do we, do we think this was information that would have been shared with the Canadian government? Um, the interesting, that's an interesting question, uh, and I'm not sure we, we're going to find out the answer to that very quickly. Uh, it does sound from the timelines that the Americans were aware of this before we were, before they made us, before they made Canada aware of it, which doesn't entirely surprise me because this would be a fairly embarrassing issue, and they may have wanted to ensure, maybe they intended to, to to keep the Indians off the, uh, to 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 use it to try and get the Indians to back off. Um, but then, when it, when the Niger killing happened, they, they were they were forced into a position in which they provided the information to the Canadian government. The, the indictment uh, also says that the Indian government official, this CC1 character that, yes. that we put up there, he made it clear to the people he was allegedly hiring to do this that the target in New York couldn't be killed in the immediate lead up or during planned engagements between high-level U.S. and Indian government officials. Now we know from June 21 to 23 that Narendra Modi was in Washington, D.C., went there for a state visit to meet with President Joe Biden. The fact that diplomatic concerns and Modi's visit to, to the White House was, was factored into this, does that suggest a high level of political involvement in this? What, like, what can we draw from this in terms of... It doesn't necessarily mean a high level of political involvement, but it does indicate that somebody was sufficiently aware of what was happening uh, that they wanted to make sure that there was no connection or could be no connection between this killing and, and, and the voting visit, that they wanted these things to be separate. But that doesn't mean that, that the, uh, the highest levels of the Indian government were aware of the assassination attempt. Well, they're certainly aware of it now. Yeah. I mean, in a response to today's indictment, the Indian government said it's setting up a high-level inquiry to investigate the allegations. Now, Canada's been calling for cooperation on the murder of Mr. Niger and to varying levels of frustration and success. I mean, when you look at this, the idea of setting up a high-level inquiry, do you think the United States, do you think Canada can put, put any faith in a process like that? Uh, one suspects that the Indians will now have to find their way out of out of a problem. They have they clearly have been somewhat inept, to say the least, in in terms of the actions they've taken. Uh, they now got to, they now have to find a, their way out. Their way out may be an inquiry, which which then points the fingers at uh, a bunch of folks who were off the reservation. Uh, that's a solution that that one could possibly foresee, uh, but it's also possible that they just are going to try and bury it. 
So uh, just as a final point, I mean, what would you be watching for next? What do you think Canada, the U.S. Ca- can do next at a diplomatic, political, or intelligence level to, tr- to try to move this to a, to a resolution? That really depends on the Indians, mm-hmm. um, and it really depends on how, f- how m- under how much pressure they feel. I suspect because of the actions today, they feel under considerable pressure. It's a great deal different from having Canada complain to having both Canada and the United States complain, and for the Americans to have taken launched a, essentially a prosecution. Um, my guess is that that this will force the Indians to do something. What that will actually be is a sixty-four million dollar question still. Okay, Ward Elcock, former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. The government has struck a deal with Google to keep Canadian news on its platform. The deal is it's transparent. It's $100 million that doesn't exist right now in this system. It's new money, new revenue. It's good for the new sector. And now it's on Facebook to explain why they're leaving their platform to disinformation and misinformation instead of sustaining our new system and participating in, our news, in, the, in the viability of our new sector. The $100 million annual amount is less than what the government was hoping for under the Online News Act, but the government calls the deal a good first step. Now, full disclosure... As a news organization, the CBC could potentially see a financial benefit under C-18, so I'm in a total conflict of interest for this whole thing. So let's bring in the power panel anyway. Amanda Alvaro is a political commentator. <laughs> Rob Benzie is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. He's conflicted as well. Here with me is Tim Powers, the chair of Summa Strategy, a company that works for Google. So I'm conflicted George, as well. George Leichnitz has clean hands on this. She is the Canada <laughs> Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert uh, uh, Foundation. Um, okay, uh, uh, Benzie, uh, let, let's start with you on this. $100 million, it's what Google put on the table to a fund, which is what Google put on the table months and months and months ago. So it's what Google wanted at the price it was willing to pay and not what the government wanted at the price it wanted. They're still calling this a win. I mean, I think Pascal Saint-Ange actually kind of saved the deal. I don't think her predecessor, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, did a particularly effective job on, on this. And that's one reason why, you're right, Google uh, could have, would have accepted this many, many months ago and didn't. Now, and, and again, full disclosure, Torstar, the parent company of the Toronto Star where I work, uh, w- is in favor of Bill C-18. Mm-hmm. I'm agnostic about these things, as you know, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's still probably a good thing for the news industry uh, in this country, which is, has been hit really hard by you know, a, a, the economic downturn that's hitting many Canadians. Uh, advertising is down in, 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 many, uh, in many media outlets. So it's, it's, it's certainly a, a positive thing in that way. But the other problem is that Meta is continuing, you know, that's the parent company of Facebook and, and Threads, the little-used Twitter uh, look-alike, and, uh, and uh, um, Instagram. So they, they're still not participating. So that's not necessarily a good thing for uh, Canadian news outlets. Right, and, and so Tim, look, uh, Suma does yep. does does work uh, for Google. So let's just put that yep. out there. State that. Uh, you don't work for Meta, uh, as far as I understand. <laughs> that would be a very difficult one uh, yeah, to pull yeah, off. I, I just want to be clear for for the audience there. <laughs> uh, you, you, there. There is a, a sense in talking to Jeff yes. Elgy earlier with Village Media that if they just compromise earlier, maybe. Meta would still be at the table. Maybe those platforms would still be available, and there might be even a little bit more money. Like, you know, how do you think of where we've ended up after all of this? Well, I'm not sure you can define the the, the methods and uh, direction that Meta has chosen based on what Google did or didn't do. I think that mm-hmm. that that's fair. a bit of a stretch. Fair, fair, fair. It's, it's it's its own company. Um, you know. <sighs> 
one of the things I think I take out of this is uh, the government also acknowledging the importance of these online sources. Uh, and we heard a lot in the summer, of course, David, around fires and things like that, yeah. that people couldn't get these pieces of information. Google are not stupid. Obviously, they're a successful enterprise. Um, they know, too, there is value in the work you and Rob and everybody else does. So I think this is a good solution for all concerned. Um, I, I don't know if it brings pressure to bear on Meta. Their statement would sure, certainly indicate that they're not viewing it that way, but no. that may just be be posturing. Um, but ultimately, for companies like Google, Meta, others that are on the, in online spaces, it's where the eyeballs are going. And does this change that game at all to change the way Meta considers this. Yeah, the solution here, Jordan, with Google is through regulations. Meta has flat out said it's the legislation that's the problem, which mm -hmm. is you know more powerful uh, than the regulations and, 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 and set of stones. So, uh, what, what's your view on um, where this landed today? Well, I mean, I think for the liberal government, this is probably a pretty pleasing solution to what's been a really vexing political problem of their entirely of their own creation. I think it must be noted. Um, and, and the fact, though, that the funds are, are not significantly more than what was on the table a year ago, I think, should be concerning to the Canadian media industry. But when it comes to Canadians who are looking to online news sources, um, really the bottom line was that the disappearance of news from Facebook and Instagram has really been a blow for people who are looking for credible information. We do have a dis and misinformation problem. Yep. And so I think it would be really dangerous, obviously, to lose that uh, access from Google as well. So the government needed to come to some sort of a solution. They've done that today. It is more money for traditional media. Um, so that's positive. I think it's interesting and noteworthy, of course, that they've arranged it in a way where that, that money is not going to pass through the hands of government. It's going to be administered by, uh, by a group uh, representing journalists and journalism organizations somehow. Somehow, yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's a recognition that maybe passing all that through government hands is, is a bit of a conflict, which I think is also smart. Uh, Amanda, is this a win for the Liberals, or did uh, Pascal St. Ange clean up uh, kind of a Pablo Rodriguez mess here today? No, I, I think this one will be seen as a win for sure. I think it does, you know, I think it does a few things. I think it's takes one step into continuing to protect the viability of our news organizations in Canada, which, you know, in smaller communities in particular, when those news organizations disappear, that's like content really disappearing at the hands of Canadians. And that's a problem. So having that access remain viable for Canadians was job one. The fact that that has been at risk for several months, I think, has been a real concern, not just for the government, but for Canadians at large. And I think that it also puts Meta in a in a bit of a predicament. Um, they didn't pull back much in their statement today, but when you have Google coming to the table saying, listen, we were able to engage with the government in productive conversations that were deeply engaging. Those were those were, those were their words. It sends a signal to Canadians that they were able to problem solve together. They were able to get to the table, find a solution that would work. And I think it then puts Meta in a bit of a corner. They said today, the only way that they could see complying with any of these proposed regulations would be to eliminate access, continue to ban access to yeah. news sources for Canadians. And I think that that's a really challenging position when there's mounting both political and public pressure on this issue. Uh, Rob, we don't yet know um, who exactly is going to qualify for this. We have a, a broad idea. We don't know how the $100 million is going to be split up and, and who's going to be kind of making these decisions as part of this collective that needs to be formed. But there were a lot of questions today about 
how the CBC and Radio Canada fit into this as publicly funded institutions with the largest journalistic workforces in the country. Should the CBC and Radio Canada be part of this, or should this be money that is set aside entirely for private sector media? <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question, David. Um, <laughs> Your future appearances on the show depend on the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I thought that... I thought, I thought you... Good for you for pressing uh, Pascal Saint-Ange on this. And I thought that it sounded to me like there might be a... You know how the Liberal government loves carve-outs these days? Yeah. Um, it sounds like there may be a carve-out. Now, does that mean that one of CBC's competitors would, would qualify, you know, Global or CTV or another uh, electronic outlet like that would qualify and, and CBC wouldn't? I, I don't know. Um, I, the argument, I guess you could say, is, look, the CBC already gets, uh, you know, $1.2 billion or, do- or whatever f- of, of federal money. So is, is that, is, should it be excluded? But then you have the other, other public broadcasters uh, here in Ontario, TV Ontario, oh, has, right, yeah. uh, you know, many journalists. Would they not qualify if you, if you carve out CBC? I don't know. Um, I thought Jeff Elgey was, uh, who has, by the way, created a lot of jobs, including five jobs at Queen's Park uh, in, in the last sort of year or so. So good for him for creating some journalistic jobs. I thought he made a very good point saying, look, it's the small outlets that are really hurting mm-hmm. the most. Um, and of course, the newspapers. You've got to help the newspapers, right? Oh, no, especially the Toronto Star. I, I mean, especially the big ones in Toronto. But, but, but Tim, it is an interesting question, right, uh, yep. that, that a lot of people are, are, are going to raise because there is a direct transfer from Canadian taxpayers, you know, to, to the public broadcaster. And now there's this fund. I mean, where do you think, how do you think it should be handled? Uh, well, I think the leadership of the CBC ought to stay quiet at the moment because they've turned themselves occasionally with the greatest respect into political pinatas and they not ought to enter this game at the moment. Not you, of course, David Cochran. Uh, you're, you're doing fine, but we, we have seen that before. Look, I, I pick up on Rob's point. I, I think if you're going to see investment, um, be smart for whatever conglomeration of, is overseeing this to look locally. I mean, you go into our part of the world in, in Newfoundland and Labrador and then spread out Atlantic Canada, we don't have the local footprint that we once had. No, and that's know. so vital. And that I think that's a winning political formula for all political parties if they you know align themselves with this the money is now coming at least during the liberal term it's going to be there local news needs this local online news sources local newspapers radio is a bit of a different kettle of fish but it's still struggling a little bit but uh, i would focus on local and local opportunity first and then look at where cbc and some of the other big players fit after that yeah how do you think they should prioritize it jordan what's the rankings yeah i would definitely agree with the focus on local news and if you look you know historically at how we've considered any kind of government subsidy for things in canada it's often we're looking at places where for a variety of reasons there's not a private business case uh for a type of service anymore um and and that sadly is now often the case when it comes to local media it's no longer profitable for for media companies needs to have that kind of strong local coverage that communities need. So in that case, I do think that there's a role for the governments to step in and support that and to do that with priority. Uh, Amanda, um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what your sense is on, on how it all gets uh, sorted out, um, but it seems, unless the Liberals uh, turn things around and win the next election, this might be a $200 commitment uh, for, from, from Google because the Conservatives, at every step of the way, have said that they would scrap this idea, right? So uh, what needs to happen between now the potential change in government uh, to cement this as something that, that is worth having? 
Yeah, well, that I think that there's two tracks. One track is really, uh, you know, a messaging exercise to ensure that the public is really on side with this. I think we have to continue to demonstrate how critical local news organizations are. And I think some of that message has been lost over the last number of months. The fact that 500 outlets have disappeared. Lots of studies show that there's uh, a media desert in places like the U.S. where you find when those outlets disappear, so does local engagement. People don't yeah. show up at the polls. People don't engage in elections. I think it's really critical that we start talking about this as part of democracy, how important it is for us to operate operate as, as a country that has a perspective on how we share information, we ensure that we're really seeding against misinformation, and that we're making sure that, that access, especially in our local northern minority communities, uh, is fulsome. And I think that that becomes a really critical part of this communication track over the next year. Uh, Benzie, just as a final point uh, from you, like in my 25 years in in the business now, it's the multivitamin journalism that's gone away, like robust coverage of legislatures, of city halls, of mm-hmm. courts. You know, yeah. if this money is going to be deployed strategically, it feels like building that civic infrastructure and civic literacy mm-hmm. would be a good place to put a priority. I, I agree, David. I mean, I, well, I'm fortunate. The Star makes a priority of yes, that stuff. Absolutely. We have an Ottawa Bureau, a City Hall Bureau, a big Queen's Park Bureau. That's really important for, for our readers and our business, uh, frankly. But it's also, I think it's important that you have civic engagement uh, across the country, that you have small cities mm-hmm. where the local council is covered by independent journalists. Now, I know people are going to say, well, wait a minute, aren't you all getting money from the government, blah, blah, blah. But I think... You, you and I both know, David, hurting journalists is like hurting cats, and they don't, they don't, they don't follow <laughs> instructions of their employer. They're not following instructions of the government money they may get. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyone who's tried to organize a press conference is going to be shocked at how hard it would be to organize this negotiation. <laughs> <laughs>
What the government said today was that they had been working since August with the with their U.S. counterparts, with counterparts around the world on this issue. So I, I guess the question that's raised is whether or not the interception that happened in the U.S. may have influenced uh, Canada in any way. Did did the U.S. flag to Canada that this was a potential uh, outcome or that this was the backstory? Uh, Benzi, I wonder when you look at this, the U.S. stopped this uh, from happening. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. Tragically, uh, the murder plot, whoever was behind it, uh, we have the allegation, was successful in Canada. Does this this raise questions uh, about what happened here, looking at how the U.S. was able to thwart what, what is alleged down there? Well, I mean, clearly, U.S. intelligence is superior to Canadian intelligence. I mean, we, it, was, it was apparent uh, from, and, and Amanda was right, that was a jaw-dropping moment. I, we all gasped when the pr- Prime Minister said what he said in the House that day. And um, I, I think it was clear at the time that it was from U.S. intercepts, um, because no offense to CSIS, but they can't even figure out who's leaking from within CSIS right now about China. So I'm not really sure uh, that that they're super fantastic at finding uh, who may be uh, Indian assassins on Canadian soil. Um, but this is a, a hugely important issue because remember, there's about two million uh, Canadians of uh, Indian heritage uh, in yeah. in this country. A huge diaspora, very powerful and influential community. And for something like this to happen, it sent shockwaves not just in in, in British Columbia, but in mm-hmm. Ontario and, and in Alberta, wherever there's a huge uh, community of of, of sick uh, um, of folks. It's a, it was a very upsetting thing that happened. I was speaking to a, a prominent sick politician shortly after uh, Mr. Trudeau's statement, and he said that that there's a, a great deal of fear in that community among the leaders of that community that they that they may be next. So it's not a surprise when you see that there were three more plots uh, potentially uh, from this U.S. Uh, indictment today. You know, Tim, I go back to you know as Rob describes it, the jaw dropping moment. Mm-hmm. The Prime Minister. I was actually I was in the press gallery that mm-hmm. day. I was sitting next to Don Newman. And I looked at him and said, have you ever seen anything like this? He's like, never, right? And, and he, he's been mm-hmm. in Ottawa a while. And, and, and there was this rush to judgment on what Trudeau was doing after the frosty relationship, you know, with Modi at the G20 and some of the pictures and the body language interpretation that was going on. This lays out quite the tale uh, that explains perhaps a whole bunch of things. That well, first of all, you have the job now. You still don't, you don't have to be nice to Don. You can say he's been around <laughs> since the Cold War. Teasing you, Don. We know you always watch the show. Um, it, it, I go back to something both Amanda and Rob said, which is maybe where this conversation goes, and that is our own spying capabilities appear to be so deficient. Look, for a long time, we have relied extensively on foreign spy bodies and information bodies to do foreign intelligence gathering for us. And as we are seeing, you know, we're not a priority for those foreign intelligence agencies often, as Amanda alludes to, and that may be proven to be the case here. When did Canada get notified? As we're reviewing our defense spending, as we're reviewing how we play in the global world, one would think this is something we need to think about because what happened earlier in this, or earlier this week on this past weekend related to all this, we have the bizarre story of the two Michaels where one of the Michaels said mm-hmm. the other was engaged in uh, spying activities, and it was because of those activities he was penalized. This is like a chaotic, hot mess that is impacting arguably, and in this case did cost somebody their lives. So where does this go? Final point, you do have to say this is a bit of a 
political good news for the Prime Minister. Uh, he can now address critics who have come after him for saying, why did you do that shock and awe on that day and not say anything more about it? So I'm sure he's glad to have some good news. He hasn't had much of it in, in recent months. Uh, you know, Jordan, there was a lot that jumped out to me uh, in the indictment and in the coverage of it. Uh, paragraph 6, for those of you who have a copy of it, it, it talks about <laughs> the, the, the man charged in New York is a, an Indian drug trafficker, is what the indictment says. But he was hired by someone, allegedly, working for the government in India. And within hours of Mr. Niger being killed, the guy in India sent photos and video of the murder scene to the person he was allegedly hiring in New York. How does an Indian government official get that within hours of a murder being yeah. committed in British Columbia? No, I mean, it's really a bombshell, right? And, and I think this does paint a picture that's incredibly alarming about uh, about violence uh, and murder that, you know, is, is, is state-sponsored here. And, and this is something... I think that uh, it's right on the money to also talk about the fear that is in some diaspora communities around this, and, and not not just the the Sikh community, but you know we also saw stories in the last couple of weeks about the Iranian Canadian community mm. feeling as though they didn't have adequate protection, um, and so I think that. There's real concerns here. There's real concerns about Canada's ability to have actionable intelligence uh, gathering uh, that, that is, and then police protection that's efficient uh, for people who are under threat. And I think, you know, to me, this also brings us back to the question of foreign interference. Remember that mm -hmm. topic? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we have a foreign interference inquiry. And should it now not also be looking at what's going on with India? It's, it's evident that there's a problem. Uh, today, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs were fairly tight-lipped, uh, except to say that they were strongly urging India to cooperate and to be forthcoming in an investigation on this. Well, I don't know how far that's going to get us, given what's happened. So I think it would be wise of the government to look at some additional steps um, to get to the bottom of this. Right, and, and actually the foreign interference conversation is exactly where I wanted to go with this. Uh, and look, we should point out, these are all allegations in yes. the indictment, but presumably uh, about this transfer video, uh, the U U.S. law enforcement has this guy's phone. Uh, why else yeah. would they put it in the indictment? But, uh, but Amanda, on mm -hmm. that point, right, like the year started with us focusing on foreign interference mm -hmm. in terms of manipulating elections and influencing mm -hmm. things. <laughs> Diaspora communities are saying we're fear, real physical security threats, and now we have this. Yes. Uh, so yes. to Tim's point that maybe this is good for the Prime Minister and that it buttresses what he did in the legislature, but it speaks to all of the concerns that people have said have been ignored for years by the national security apparatus of the country. Yeah, and the, the further concern also being that, you know, it's no secret that the U.S. and Canada are looking to build those ties and relationships with India right now, especially to kind of curb the, the Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific region. So you saw that, or I felt you saw that in Trudeau's response today, which to me felt quite measured. He sort of warned uh, India to take things seriously. I felt that, you know, uh, Minister Jolie's comments were, were similar to that. And uh, I think that that is a reflection of this ideal that this relationship with India continued to build while at the same time being seen, obviously, to, to care uh, with extreme measures for the safety of Canadians. So kind of walking that line at a time where we're probably going to return to our conversation about foreign interference and the role that China plays in that in the Indo-Pacific region. So, uh, uh, Rob, you mentioned earlier, I think it was, you said, two million Canadians are of uh, Indian descent or trace their heritage uh, back there. Um, 
because of that, there has been a tendency in politics to kind of cozy up to Modi, right, mm-hmm. in, in particular. There's been mm-hmm. a lot of that um, uh, in Canadian politics over the last number of years. When you look at the events of the last three, four months, mm-hmm. and, and certainly the, the allegations laid out today, can, can politicians keep doing that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very tough one. I mean, it's a huge trading partner for, for Canada. Uh, Modi leads the world's largest democracy, also the world's largest country in terms of population. They've passed China now. Um, so it's a very, it's a very thorny problem. I, I actually, I agree with Amanda. I thought that the, the Prime Minister today seemed more muted. He wasn't triumphalist and said, you see, I told you guys, you know and believe me. He was, mm-hmm. I thought, and I, I, I wonder if he was being measured so that he's almost giving Modi wiggle room so that he can say that this was a a, 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 a research and analysis wing. Raw is the is the is the Indian um, spy agency. It was a rogue operation that went bad, and and, and you know, and, and and they'll find out who did it, and and we'll deal with it internally. I, I mean, maybe that's what he's doing. He's trying to give Modi some deniability. Although it should be noted that the Indian press is covering this in a different way than we are in North America. They uh, they kind of have been saying, well, of course, Canada's been hiding these Khalistan separatists, so we should, uh, of course, be uh, rooting them out. It's different. It's a different vibe there than here. That's yeah, we, we've been hiding them in New York City, uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, Tim, on that point, right, like, biggest country on earth, um, a democracy, um, a counterweight to China's influence in a very important region. But, you know, we've seen Modi kind of meeting with Putin and Xi and buying Russian oil and buying Russian weapons. You know, can Canada look to a country like India with all of this? Can the West look to a country like India as a truly trustworthy and reliable partner the way they look at their North Atlantic allies? Well, the question is, have they been already? And we're not 100% certain of that. They're obviously doing the, the dip the diplomatic dances that need to be done because of all the reasons that have been discussed, the diaspora, the economy, uh, the future opportunities for Canada. But I go back to something I said earlier. I think if we are really going to play in this world, we need to look at how we do our own security and intelligence. Yes, we play the diplomatic game, but we need to get better. So when the Prime Minister, whether it be Justin Trudeau, Stephen Harper, or anybody else, says we're going to get tough with India, India actually understands what that means because we have mm-hmm. the security, the intelligence resources to do that because the words alone I don't think are going to frighten the Indian government or any other government. Okay, Jordan, last word to you. Yeah, I think this is actually a broad challenge for for Western democracies in general about how they're going to approach India and and particularly when you have Modi there who in in many ways is clearly a bad actor in some of these global problems. And so I think there's a lot to be said for a multilateral approach uh, on India that does take a tough stance on this this type of thing that's really anti-democratic and and, and very, uh, very frightening for a lot of people. All right, gang, thanks so much. Two very different topics today. I want to thank the Power Panel, Amanda Alvaro, <laughs> Rob Benzi, Tim Power. And, and Can you get that right? 20 years and you still can't say my name right. I mean, you wear pinstripes <laughs> and now you forget everybody, eh? And Jordan like. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.